Good morning, everybody. Mark chapter 4, I'll give you a few seconds to get there. We're in verses 21 through 25. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background and context for what we're about to read, because we are in a chapter full of parables. One of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching truths about the kingdom. We saw that last week. And what we saw last week was one of the biggest parables in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, this is probably the longest unbroken sections of Jesus speaking, and one of the few parables where he not only tells a story, but he explains it not only to the disciples on the scene, but also to us today. And that parable, the one of the sower sowing seed, would then go on to give us a pace for all the parables we're about to read in the Gospel of Mark. So I want to give you a little recap on last week's parable. It was the parable of the sower where we saw that the seed of the sower is like the gospel of the kingdom. That's what's going forward. That's what we're talking about around the dinner table. That's what we're living out from. That's what's reflected in our communities. That's what we're talking about with each other. That's how we live our lives at work. And as Jesus explains the parable, he says there are certain ways of reacting and responding to the gospel of the kingdom. There's four. And the first three are no good. (laughs) It's what happens when the word of the kingdom gets choked out by the cares of this world, by ourselves. Or uh, we, we hear the gospel of the kingdom, we see it in our lives, but because we have no depth and no roots in our lives, it gets lost very quickly when we suffer. And the other one was when the gospel of the kingdom gets stolen by the devil. We're blinded to it, we can't see it. And then he gives us the fourth way. He says, this is what happens when the gospel of the kingdom takes root. And he says in verse 20, chapter 4, those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. I want you to hear this trifecta. They hear the word, they accept the word, and they bear fruit. They hear it, they accept it, they do something about it, all right? I want you to hear that again. They hear the word, they accept the word, they do something about it. That's important because in the next few parables, he's basically going to talk about each of those in the sequence. He's going to give a parable, Jesus is, about what it means to hear the gospel of the kingdom, how to hear well. In the parable after that, he's going to give a a story about how to accept the gospel of the kingdom, and then finally we'll see a parable about action and what it looks like when the gospel uh, takes root in our hearts. So that's what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 25, what it means to see and to hear. We're going to look at the the journey into the kingdom is really a journey of waking up and seeing. And so with that, I'm going to read for us. You can follow along with me if you have your devices or your Bibles open. Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 25. And this is what Jesus says. He says to them, is a lamp brought in to be under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and still more will be added to you, but for the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has 
will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. The journey into the kingdom is a journey involving waking up. The first step of entering into the kingdom of God, of experiencing the free gift of God's kingdom is a journey of waking up to what Jesus is saying. And what we see here are three things in this parable. And the first one is seeing and hearing rightly. I want to read those first two verses just very briefly, again, just so it's fresh in our minds. Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be just hidden under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? It's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is no. Nobody brings a lamp into a dark place just to hide it under another dark place. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. He's telling us right now that the purpose of a lamp, the purpose of a light, is to expose that which is dark. And if there's a lamp in a house, its purpose is to expose the dark places. Now, most of us reading that, we might read that and be like, carry on, I know this, this is self-explanatory, light gets rid of darkness. What's the second point? But I think it's worth our time to pause in this section because I think there's at least two myths based on culture and church tradition and perhaps our own upbringing surrounding what this light is. When Jesus talks about a lamp, some of us might have at least two myths about the light. And the first one is this. The myth is that the light is ours. That somehow, wherever we go, we are the ones who have the light. We are the lamp that Jesus speaks of. In fact, so deeply ingrained is this myth within so many of us that you might even recall the nursery song or the children's ministry song that some of us sang from our youth. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. And here's the thing, that's a, that's a good song, and it's saying a good thing. And there's other verses in the Bible that would exemplify the fact that we, as Christians, are supposed to be a light that shines. But that's not Mark's point. Mark isn't talking about me, and he's not talking about you. He's not talking about a little light of mine. He's talking about a different kind of light. And there's a few things that I'm getting this from. One is there's just the old, uh, the old-fashioned metaphor of a lamp in the Old Testament. Everywhere it comes up, whether it's Deuteronomy or the Psalms or Isaiah, always seems to be used as a metaphor for one of three things. It's either God, or it's the Messiah, or it's the Torah, the Word of God. In the Old Testament, the word that Jesus is using is almost always used metaphorically to speak about the Lord in some way or another, either his presence or his word. Not only that, but Mark has a slightly different angle in the story. You can find this story all over the Gospels. You can find it in Matthew. You can find it in Luke. Every one of the Gospel writers seems to love talking about the lamp and the light that comes from the lamp. But Mark tells it a little bit differently. 
The other gospel writers in Matthew and in Luke have just a slightly different syntax. They put the lamp as the, as the object of the sentence, but Mark puts it as the subject of the sentence. It's the most important part of the sentence that he's communicating. Not only that, but even though it's hard to see it in the English translation, he attaches a definite article to the lamp, the lamp. It would be as if you were writing this to a friend and you capitalized lamp. It was as if you were personifying the lamp for people. In other words, he ain't talking about an actual lamp. I think a lot of us know that by now. Nor is he talking about some symbolic spiritual condition in all of us that we need to shine. He's talking about a person. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the light that Mark is speaking about. Not only that, but even the wording that he uses, bringing the lamp into a building, it's a very strong word, meaning to come into the room. It's as if the lamp is taking on some action of its own. Lamps don't just walk into a room unless it's referring to a person. Make no mistake, Mark wants you to see that the lamp that he's speaking about is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the light that Jesus gives all throughout Mark we have seen is often concealed, but its intent was to be put on display. Jesus enlightens and he reveals and he shows things that are difficult for us to see. He reveals things to us that maybe we don't even want to see. And ultimately, he will do this through his death and resurrection. That's the first myth, the light is ours. It's not ours, it's Jesus. Here's the, but here's the second myth. The second myth we might sometimes tell ourselves is that the light is always warm. That when Jesus spreads his light in a room, it's always for your comfort and pleasure. I remember growing up, I used to see these t-shirts that used to be popular. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. And it had a silhouette of Jesus like in, a, uh, in black and white on a t-shirt. And the sentiment there was that Jesus is my buddy. And he's always there to pat me on the back and to affirm everything that I'm doing in life. And that's just not always the case, is it? The light is not always warm. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's unnerving. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. And when Jesus reveals things in our life, yes, sometimes it's for our comfort and encouragement. But sometimes the light isn't always comforting. Sometimes it's confrontational. Sometimes Jesus isn't just savior and friend. Sometimes he's got to be king. Actively, lovingly jealous for your attention and for your love he will become confrontational at times. And we see this in the last sentence in verse 22 where it says, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. How many of you have ever seen a secret come to light that was comfortable to watch? This is almost like whistleblower Jesus. 
who sees things in our life that shouldn't be there but is the only one who has the courage enough to point it out. We don't always like that, do we? The takeaway here is that when Mark is speaking, when he's quoting Jesus as telling this parable, make no mistake, the takeaway is that Jesus is the light who reveals and confronts things in the world, but also things in our life. This is almost aggressive language, a secret coming to light. And this is sometimes what Jesus will do in our lives. And you might be experiencing this right now, like my spirituality. You might be saying, my spirituality is not what I intended it to be. When I first started coming to church 10, year, uh, 10 months ago, things were bright and pleasurable and fun and people were awesome and there was no drama. And 10 months later, you might have a different story to tell. You might say, this is hard. This is not what I expected. You might feel just a, a butting up against things in your spirituality that don't make sense to you as God is attempting to rearrange your priorities, rearrange the loves of your heart, rearrange your ambitions, and realign your joys. And sometimes it feels great, and sometimes it's just incredibly uncomfortable. As Jesus, like the great physician he is, does surgery on us. When is surgery ever fun? But what some of us need to hear right now is that even though the things that Jesus does in our lives and says, when he confronts, when he exposes, when he reveals things in our lives that he wants to shake up or even remove, it's always love. Because Jesus isn't just a savior. Jesus is also king, which is the theme of the gospel of Mark. And as king, he has claimed ownership over you. And that is the most loving thing that a God could do, is to say to people like you and me, you are going in this direction out of rebellion and out of sin, maybe even out of confusion, hurt, and pain, but I love you too much to let you do that. And so the first process for some of us as we experience the good news of God's kingdom is confrontation. And this is what I think Jesus means when he talks about a lamp. Sometimes it's that initial moment where we see what God is telling us and we don't like it. And my question for some of you is, are you being confronted right now? Is, is God confronting something in your life and are you trying to avoid it or ignore it? You know, I kind of liken this experience to an old building we used to be in uh, when we used to meet at the Santa Barbara High School, which was, I think, a year or two ago. It's about two years ago. Feels like five. <laughs> Anyone in this parking lot or uh, in this parking lot, were you here? Can I see your hands at the Santa Barbara High School? Anybody? Okay. Oh, wow. A lot of people. There was something that happened to me every Sunday when I would leave that theater. The theater was dark extremely dark. It was made for high school plays. And we'd be sitting in that place for 90 minutes, and then every Sunday, I would leave that theater, and I would go outside. 
not only to bright sunlight, but to that large, bright concrete slab. And the experience for me, I don't know if you can resonate with this, was a complete shock as my eyes just couldn't adjust to the brightness of the sun. It was too bright. And there would be Sundays where I'd see a bunch of you out there talking. I'd walk out. I'd be like, oh, I can't do this. And I'd go back into the theater. But in my better pastoral moments, I would embrace the light as uncomfortable as it was. I'd squint. I'd make a beeline for the coffee station. And I'd find you out there. And over time, my eyes would begin to adjust. This is the first stage that we see in the parable of the lamp. Jesus sometimes does uncomfortable things in our lives. He says uncomfortable things. He reveals uncomfortable things. And we have a choice to go back into the dark theater and avoid that or stay with him. And if you stay with him, your eyes will adjust. And this brings us to the second stage of the parable. Not just seeing, but listening. Jesus says in uh, verse 23, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And now he's switching metaphors. Now it was seeing a bright lamp, but now it's hearing to what this lamp is communicating. And we saw this last week. This is a different kind of hearing. In that parable of the sower, there were four types of people. And the first three had, uh, when, when, Mark, uh, when Mark described them as listening and hearing, he was speaking the past tense. It was equivalent to the kind of hearing that sometimes our kids give us, where it's in one ear and out the other. I listened to what you said, Dad, but my mind was somewhere else. It's the kind of listening that I do because I'm so focused on something. If someone says something to me and I'm focused on something else, I, I will hear you. I might even respond to you. I might even say, yeah, that's a great idea. But it didn't make, it just passed through my head. Can anyone relate to that? That's the type of hearing Jesus was speaking about when the word of God gets choked out, when suffering overwhelms us, when the devil blinds us to what God is saying. It's a kind of hearing that happens in the past and just doesn't sink in. And you might recall that in the parable of the sower and in verse 23, when Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, he's speaking with a different sense and a different tense. It has this ongoing, continual quality. And this is the type of person who doesn't just hear something once and move on, but who hears it and is strangely allured by what they hear. They linger on that word just a little bit. Uh, enough to pause and to wonder about what God is saying. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's a continual, wholehearted hearing. And in this section, we actually see that part of hearing Jesus entails a journey. You don't just hear him once and you move on. Sometimes, and in some places... We actually have to struggle through what Jesus is telling us. This actually makes me think of uh, what modern psychologists will describe as the five stages of grief. That whenever we hear something uncomfortable, 
Or in worst cases, whenever we suffer and go through a moment of tremendous loss, it doesn't just click for us. There's a journey that we have to go through. And doctors will tell you that it starts with denial. You get some news, you don't like it, and you deny it. You say, well, that's not true. That's not happening to me. That's not my situation. Then from denial, you might move from denial to then anger, where you're just, you're, you're victimized. Spiritually speaking, you might be angry at God. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you messing up my relationships? Why are you doing this in my church? Why are you doing this in my job? I thought I was going to get a breakthrough, but you've abandoned me. After anger comes a season of bargaining. God, if you just cut me some slack, I'll serve you every Sunday. I'll tear down the stage in the baking sun. I'll go to home group. I'll give. I'll do everything you want. Just change this one thing. And then from bargaining comes depression. A season of absolute isolation and darkness where nothing makes sense. And then, as people will say, the fifth and final stage is a stage of acceptance. Where in a very healthy way, you're able to detach from whatever's going on and to look at it with fresh eyes and to accept that this is where you're at and to heal. I love that analogy, those five stages, because this is maybe what some of you are going through spiritually speaking. God has been working and moving in your life, but not in a way that you expected. This wasn't the five-year spiritual plan that you had asked God for in your nightly prayers. But God is in it. Where are you? Are you in a stage of denial? Are you angry? Are you bargaining? Are you broken and depressed? I say all of that, and maybe you're hearing this, and you're even feeling defensive over it. Like, oh, why are you saying this to me? Just tell me that God loves me. Let's sing some songs and eat lunch. I want to say this because if you are feeling like you're in one of those stages, that's great news. It means God is pulling you through the darkness. And even though it feels like a struggle right now, there is light on the other end of that struggle. Your only responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to just keep going after him. Even in that season of denial. Even in that season of anger. Even when you're bargaining, even when you're depressed. And for some of you, what that looks like is you're inviting the presence of God into those moments. Maybe you don't feel spiritually mature. Maybe you don't feel like a spiritual superhero. Maybe you're barely making it in this parking lot or at home on the live stream right now. And it's all you can do just to make it to a church gathering on Sunday. And the only thing that you have to offer God is your depression. Then do it. That's all he asks for. is for you to be present to him as he's present to you. And so press in. The journey into the kingdom is often a journey of just waking up. 
And eventually, as you press in to the presence of God, even when you can't feel it, you will find yourself accepting what God is doing in your life. This brings us to the third and final stage of this parable, and that is paying attention. Verse 24 and 25, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is just old-fashioned investment language. Jesus is saying the people who have caught what I'm doing in their lives, they'll experience a critical mass of God's kingdom being displayed in their lives, and it'll just, like a snowball effect, there will be a breakthrough. And those who remain blind and remain stubborn and remain in rebellion or remain uh, satisfied to wander in their confusion away from me will find that they're lacking more and more. But what does it mean to pay attention? That's probably the verse that I want to hone in on and end with. He just told us to look at the lamp, to look at him and to see him as he confronts areas of our life. And then he says to listen, if anyone has ears to let him hear, meaning to accept that confrontation. But what does paying attention mean? I think paying attention in this situation means a form of commitment. Not mere listening, not mere acceptance, but almost a sense of ownership and buy-in. A kind of radical commitment and trust that you would get from a child who doesn't think too far in advance about how the details of their life are going to work out. They're just like, yeah, dad, let's go to the park. I'm in. I'm with you. In this parable, we see a kind of grit involved with anybody who gets to this point where they're paying attention to what Jesus says. It's a kind of hearing that just doesn't just hear, but it's also unwilling to let go of what Jesus is doing and saying. If I could define grit, I would say it, it looks like radical responsibility and commitment. A sense of ownership that this isn't just information Jesus is giving me. It's a path he's leading me on, and I need to be on that path. For those of you that like tangible examples of what this looks like, look no farther than Mark chapter 5, and that woman famously described with the issue of blood. I want to read that section because it's so powerful, starting in verse 25 of chapter, uh, Mark chapter 5, says there was a great crowd that followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and who had suffered a lot. She'd suffered much under many doctors and had spent all that she had and was no better, but was rather growing worse. She heard the reports about Jesus. There's the lamp. She's confronted. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. If I can just touch the hem of his cloak, something good will happen. 
And she did. And it says in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Notice it's at this point, we could end the story. She gets healed, but the story doesn't stop. It says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, there's like a crowd around you. They're pressing up on you. They're all up in your grill, and yet you say, who touched me? You silly Messiah. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before the Messiah and told him the whole truth. She confessed. And in that moment, crystallized what God was doing in her life. And notice in verse 34, it says, he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I love this story because it doesn't just end with her hearing. It doesn't even just end with her action. It ends with a confession on our part of the power and beauty of Jesus in her life. And what that tells me is that sometimes we also must take that step forward and speak. The way I want to end this, this section of the scripture and the sermon with you together is, is by posing this question. Where in your life is Jesus wanting to shine a light? Or maybe a different way of asking the same question is, where have you been guarded? Maybe there's compartmentalized sections of your life that you are freely comfortable with giving to Jesus, but not these others. What are those? Where have you been guarded? As you take a couple seconds to reflect on that, I want to invite you into one of the most powerful and moving ancient practices that the church has known. And it's simply confession. You see in the Bible, we see all throughout Christian history that confession is often the key to experiencing the freedom that God has already given to us in Christ. It's not a way to manipulate God or to get something from him. We've already freely received from God, but sometimes we put up these walls that prevent us from seeing and experiencing the beautiful confrontation of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that often confession is what we need. Now, confession in Christianity is less about loading up on shame, coming to Jesus and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I feel bad. And more about tangibly inviting God into the shame that we have so that he can heal us. Brothers and sisters and friends, do you see? So much of Christianity is less about us trying to turn a knob of moralism so that God will do something for us and simply opening up our lives for him to do what he already wants to do. Confession is one of those things that activates that. In fact, 
Jesus' half-brother James would say something very similar. He'd say, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I want to pause it this morning as Andrea and the, the team come up and we, we respond in singing. I want to pause it, suggest, even invite this morning that perhaps for some of us in this room, there's a little bit of darkness hiding out there that we're trying to guard and protect. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's something with your career. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something you're just hiding for yourself. But you know at this point that Jesus is prodding at that thing. And maybe you've come Sunday after Sunday telling yourself, today will be the day that I get free and nothing budges. Well, today I want to invite you to do something bold. I want you to do what the woman did in chapter five. Not just stealthily walk through a crowd in the middle of a parking lot and subtly touch the hem of Jesus' robe. I want you to put it into words to somebody next to you. Confess what is that thing with full expectation that Jesus is going to heal you. For some of you, that means confessing to a friend right next to you. For others, it means going back to your family and confessing it to a loved one or to a friend. For others, we'll have prayer teams by that white suburban. It means just coming up to a stranger and having them pray over you something you can't pray for yourself. But whatever it is, put it into tangible words and take that step of faith and be bold. Last thing I want to give you is a model that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 139. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. If you've never done this before and you don't know what to do, just plagiarize the psalmist this morning. God, search my heart. Open up the dark places and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Let's do this together. Because journeying into the kingdom is a journey of waking up. Let's begin to open our eyes and to respond to the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ.